Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest William Lipkin, attorney, partner, and chair of Wilson Elser's Tax Planning and Controversies Practice for a discussion on incomplete non-grantor trusts and community property trusts. We also take a look at the favorable private letter rulings that Mr. Lipkin has obtained from the IRS on these and other tax planning strategies. This is David Warren, uh, co-founder and chairman of the Board of Bridgeford Trust Company. Very excited to be uh, continuing our podcast series that we recently launched uh, and uh, actually was launched very successfully. Uh, and we're uh, particularly thrilled to have um, Bill Lipkin with us today as uh, as our ongoing attempt to bring very relevant information, uh, very topical information and, and really educational uh, information to help uh, with planning around the country relative to trust planning and tax planning and asset protection planning. And in many respects, Bill Lipkin is, is a planner and an attorney who does not need much of an introduction. Um, he is extremely prolific all over the United States in terms of his writing, uh, particularly around tax planning uh, and his creativity in terms of working with attorneys, not only around the country, but all over the world uh, and helping come up with the most creative and, and I would say cutting edge solutions uh, for take for ta- for tax planning generally, um, Bill is a, is a graduate of Harvard University and received his LLM uh, from New York University and has a, an illustrious career of of finding um, legal ways to deal with tax issues. And and what I love about Bill's approach is that everything he does, he gets clarification on, and in, in most cases gets gets validation from the IRS. So. Bill's not talking about schemes or, or ways to do things nefariously. He's talking about legitimate ways to do things under current tax code, which is great. We came to know Bill uh, years ago, very early days of Bridgeford. He became a friend of Bridgeford early. He took a took a chance on a young Bridgeford trust company, gonna get us getting us involved with some some very sophisticated planning, and taught me a lot over the years uh, about all kinds of things, uh, in particular relative to Bridgeford's organization. Uh, we had retained Bill and his firm. Uh, to help reorganize Bridgeford and the current structure we have today is very much coming out of Bill's thinking in terms of best uh, presenting Bridgeford nationally. So as I said, we consider Bill a a very good friend of Bridgeford um, and in many respects for me, a mentor. So we are thrilled to have him with us. Uh, So with that, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. Um, I was wondering whether you were talking about someone else. It sounded so nice. Well, we have an hour together, so I'm gonna, it's just only going to get better. <laughs> Bill, you know, one of the things that has, has really intrigued me about about your work is is your passion around helping uh, clients, large clients, families, really in in a correct way, um, pay the taxes they're supposed to pay and not pay the taxes they're not supposed to pay. Talk to me about your passion. When when did this get sparked for you? When when did you see this as a as a as a point of or area of law that you really wanted to dedicate time and attention to? Well, that's a very deep question, and uh, I suppose there are those who would say I would go back to my childhood and my relationship with my father, but I did evolve into an adult with a strong abiding distaste of all authority, and I can't think of a bigger authority than federal and state uh, governments, and I was also 
uh, a chess player in my youth, and uh, I've enjoyed competitive athletics. So if you put it all together, I think it's a lot of fun to help people protect their wealth from onslaughts, whether it's a matter of taxation or potential creditors down the road. It's just a lot of fun. And you've heard me say over and over again, it's not worth doing if it isn't fun. So let's talk about the fun that you have. You know, you you have been and have absolutely emerged as an expert in various areas, but in particular, this concept called an ing. In South Dakota, we like to call it a sing, but essentially it's an incomplete non-grantor trust, which really isn't a new concept, right, Bill? I mean, talk, talk a little bit about the history of that. Well, it's it's not a new concept because it goes back to a 1940 decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, but the Internal Revenue Code spells out what's a grantor trust and what isn't a grantor trust. Um, and that's been around for a long time. Um, but what, what sort of got us into the present mode is that as the more recent years evolved uh, and state income taxation uh, kept going up, uh, we, we, we looked for ways of minimizing the exposure to state income taxation and creating a separate taxpayer where the client still can retain enough controls that he can he or she can sleep well at night uh, went to the uh, uh, the core um, on the modern era um, of course uh, Jonathan Blotmacher was a pioneer in this but then internal revenue stopped ruling because there were problems uh, uh, with respect to powers of appointment. Um, we came on the scene in this arena back in 2012 uh, with a solution to the problems that beset internal revenue. And it was a fun few days down in Washington, jawboning uh, with uh, the senior attorneys at the branch. But um, we did succeed in that. Um, and um, it was all, it's all been uh, downhill after that, uh, writing, lecturing, and, uh, and, and dealing with it. But the focus was a legitimate manner to eliminate for the benefit of a family state income taxation of non-source income, portfolio income, sale of a business. Um, that, that intrigues people, I should add that the current administration, having uh, changed the tax laws in 2017 to tell the high income tax states that the state income tax is no longer deductible, only has produced ever more clients uh, as effective tax rates, federal and state, uh, have hit 50% or greater. Right. I was going to ask you to comment on that. It's, it is amazing how red hot this issue has become. And, and when you taught me how it worked back in 2012, um, I don't think, at least I didn't anticipate it becoming uh, such an issue now. And it's interesting because we, we hear about it all the time. We get questions all the time. And yes. um, and so this is this is a perfect planning tool. The, the non-grantor trusts also have utilization uh, in addition 
to just minimizing or eliminating state income taxes. Uh, you have the 20% deduction on pass-through entities under 199 cap A, um, and there's a role for non-grantor trusts there as an additional uh, uh, taxpayer, although um, one doesn't want to create the trust just for that purpose. There are other strategies, for example, private placement variable life, where non-grantor trusts uh, are the holder of it. Uh, so the uses of the non-grantor trusts have uh, really exploded. Uh, many of them are incomplete gifts, but there's a, many of them are also completed gifts. Uh, and then with the flexibility of internal decanting uh, that you have with states such as South Dakota, uh, there's tax planning that can be done uh, between a completed gift or an incomplete gift grantor trust and a non-grantor trust. Um, um, it's a whole two-hour lecture in and of itself on the current uses of non-grantor trusts. Well, let's go back, if we could, to sort of the, the foundation of the of the planning concept that we're talking about. And I absolutely want to make sure we come back to PPLI, Bill, because I know you've emerged as an expert in that space as well. But generally speaking, let's start at the beginning, because it seems to me, unless you tell me I'm wrong, the, the, the first part of the conversation is selecting the proper jurisdiction to even do this planning in. So talk to me about that. How has that evolved over the years? Um, what states do you think are the strongest? And then why don't we transition into the actual structure of, of this ing and, and why it's so compelling. But first, talk to me about jurisdiction. You've seen, you've seen this conversation unfold over the last 25 years. What are your thoughts there? Well, before the IRS put the kibosh on private letter rulings and before we were involved, uh, you would have seen either Alaska or Delaware. When we got involved, um, being cowards, we started off in Delaware, but IRS expressed to us certain reservations they had about Delaware statutes. And again, being cowards, it was easier to switch than fight. So we switched uh, to uh, Nevada, and Nevada is a good location. There were some aspects in Alaska um, that appealed to us, but there were some defects in the community property statute uh, in Alaska. So we had exposure with you to South Dakota, um, and um, I, I generated uh, the basic uh, statute, which uh, Terry then uh, evolved and had enacted so that uh, South Dakota has that community property statute. Yeah, let, let's pause on that. If, 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 I, if I could interrupt you. Oh, I'm but sorry, in please. in terms of favorite jurisdictions, from where we sit, our two favorite jurisdictions are Nevada and South Dakota. Um, uh, we, we've done some in Alaska. We've done some in Wyoming. But mm -hmm. our but South Dakota and Nevada are our favorite jurisdictions. Excellent. Well, and you raised the community property uh, 
statute um, or trust that is something that we we see a lot and work with a lot. Could you describe that? Because you absolutely were a, a major driver, you and Terry Prendergast, uh, to making sure that happened in South Dakota. And not only happened, but happened within like 15 months of, of I think, from beginning to end, it became law, which is, is a real testament to how fast South Dakota moves. But let's let's pause on that. Could you describe that? Because I think you describing what the community property trust does, and then we can get back into how that interplays with the ing strategy um, at, at certain instances um, would be very helpful. Because I could tell you the community property trust is still a, a very new topic for lots of the people that I talk to all over the country. Uh, they're not clear, and in some cases have never heard of it. So could you could you describe it in concept? Well, we go back to. The Internal Revenue Code, which says that when a person dies, uh, the assets includable in his estate get a step up in income tax basis to their fair market value. Special provision for the community property states like California, that when the first spouse dies, 100% of the assets get stepped up. So that presents the question that if the spouses in California, for example, transfer assets into a completed gift trust, do they still get the step up in basis? Um, when the issue was presented to people in Nevada, for example, different attorneys took different positions, even though Nevada is a community property state. Uh, Alaska at the time had and still has a form of community property statute, but some uh, commentators have raised certain questions about uh, the Alaska statute, which while Alaska attorneys say those questions uh, are not valid, nonetheless, it's never been cleared up. I said to Terry once upon a time, um, let's why not have South Dakota enact a statute so that people can put property in there and under that statute, which is important, you need the state law blessing to get the step up in basis, the property would be community property. And uh, Terry and I worked together and that was accomplished. Now, from the time it's been accomplished to the present time, we've had a slew of private letter rulings from where the clients have been in community property states. We've made use of the South Dakota community property statute, and the rulings have all been issued saying that there's that full step up in basis. Um, the, the position to our clients in California is that while we're doing the non-grantor uh, trust, to eliminate California income taxes from certain categories of income, nobody wants to lose the step up in basis. So we combine the two elements to get to a better result. That's excellent, Bill. A quick, a quick question. I know it's one that I've asked you a few times, and I, I want to make a distinction. And I, in fact, and I don't know if there's been development with respect to families or individuals, well, families, married couples that are in non-community property trust states that want to take advantage of South Dakota's statute here. Has there been any any definitive conclusion as to whether or not this works? Have you had a peeler that looks at it from that perspective? We have not had a request 
from um, someone domiciled in a non-community property state to make use of the community property statute on an elective basis and seek a PLR. Uh, commentators going back to the Alaska statute some time ago have gone both ways on whether uh, common law citizens can cherry pick and select particular assets to be, and label them community property. So there's a bit of an unknown. I certainly would welcome someone who wished uh, to do that. Let me also point out that if you have someone from New York or New Jersey, for example, um, who has put the ownership interest in their business into the non-grantor trust, and then shortly thereafter, there's a liquidity event. Well, once you have cash, you don't need a step up in basis uh, so that most of these trusts come about with a view towards the sale of a business. Where mm -hmm. I would suspect uh, people might be interested would be in transferring a portfolio that has substantial unrealized appreciation and the wealth advisor uh, hasn't yet decided that the client should incur the income tax burden of uh, selling off those appreciated uh, assets. We look mm -hmm. forward to such a case, but it hasn't come to us yet. Well, I, I implore our listeners who are listening in, if they have a, a fact pattern like this in a non-community property trust state, we would love the opportunity to work together to uh, to get some clarity on the issue and contact Bill, and he'd be happy to submit the PLR. Let's let's um, let's go back to the to the in concept, incomplete non-grantor trust for a second. Um, in its simplest form, Bill, explain why it's such a compelling tax play from from a conclusion, and then maybe talk about briefly its structure. Why, why is it so compelling, particularly today? Well, let me take two examples, and these were the first two PLRs uh, that we obtained. The first one was on behalf of a New Jersey client who wanted to put a $400 million portfolio into the structure so that the capital gains, interest, and dividends being generated by $400 million would not be subject to New Jersey income taxes. But yet, there was a methodology in the trust to make distributions to um, his children and, frankly, to himself also. That's case one. Case two involved a lovely lady from California, uh, which was almost the same time as the first one, who had uh, who was selling her business for two hundred million dollars, and when she multiplied two hundred million times thirteen point four percent, contemplating the California state income tax, uh, came to the conclusion. It would be nice not to pay 13.4% of $200 million. So the basic form of the trust is that it's an irrevocable trust. When we say ing, we say it's an incomplete gift. No, no, no gift tax consequences going in, no estate tax savings coming out as long as it's incomplete. To avoid it, everything being taxed, to the settlor as a grantor trust, 
there can't be any distributions to the settlor or the settlor's spouse without the consent of an adverse party. An adverse party basically is uh, the beneficiaries other than the settlor and his or her spouse. Case one, there are four sons. Uh, case uh, two, there's actually nine children because it was a second marriage. And what you do is you have a committee, we call it a power of appointment committee or a distribution committee, uh, acts uh, by majority vote with the consent of the settlor unanimously without the consent of the settlor to make distributions to the settlor. Meanwhile, the settlor retains the power to hire and fire trustees, although I've never had a settlor do that, and you can have a directed trust uh, and the, the settlor can hire and fire the investment trustee on the directed trust. If you add it all up, the client has sufficient control, whether it was my 400 million or my 200 million over those assets, his wealth advisor is investing the money and the state income taxes have been eliminated um, well, there may be some potential hiccups. For example, if your children hate you, you don't want to give them the consent to take your money. But putting aside uh, that type of a sport situation, that's the essence of the incomplete non-grantor trust. And I should add, David, that doing it as a completed gift is a function of whether one can make the gift into the trust and make use of the exclusions and exemptions and not pay gift tax. Uh, footnote, uh, New York is the one state in the United States that says if it's an incomplete non-grantor trust for federal purposes, New York will treat it as a grantor trust. So we don't do incomplete non-grantor trusts in, in New York. Uh, and I leave to a, also to one side whether that particular New York statute is constitutional. Right. That's, that's the long and short of, of the state income tax aspects. I should also add, um, this is not done for asset protection purposes. Uh, people should pay their creditors. People shouldn't conspire to hide assets from creditors. But in order to make the strategy work, the, the trusts all have spendthrift provisions and creditors cannot, absent a fraudulent conveyance, um, have a right of access into the trust. If, if, this, if we did this very same trust in New Jersey, which wouldn't permit a settlor to be a beneficiary of his own trust, unlike Alaska, Delaware, Nevada, South Dakota, where a settler can be a beneficiary of his own trust, uh, then it simply would not work. Mm -hmm. So wealth preservation, asset protection, while not the purpose of the trust, is an indirect um, beneficiary, as it were, in establishing the trust. And as I've said to clients, while there's no guarantee that no creditor could, could persuade a court on a fraudulent conveyance, your assets are certainly safer than, than if they're sitting in your pocket. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate you making that distinction because, you know, we, I get that question a lot. Um, we deal a lot with asset protection trusts, domestic asset protection trusts, and, and I agree with you. It seems that, that there are tangential benefits, the asset protection, the privacy, the control mechanisms that you talk about, but really it's a, it's a tax play, which I, I try to keep people focused on. Bill, you've, how many PLRs have you, have you done to date on, on this specific concept? You know, I used to be able to answer the question. I can't answer it anymore. There's so many. Um, and it's not only our own clients, but there are firms around the country that uh, come to us. They may do the trust. We'll review it. But we do the PLR because having done so many and there are enough variations, you know, I jokingly say that an expert is somebody who's done it once. We've done enough that it'll be a rare day where anyone comes up with a provision in a trust where we don't know whether the, the service will accept it or reject it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would imagine if you added up all the PLRs, and in many cases for a given client, there may be seven or eight, the trustee wants one, the members of the power of appointment committee want one. Um, you know, we go, how far over 100? I don't know, but <laughs> there are a lot of them, David. In excess of 100. That's that's amazing. Which let's, leads me to, quite literally, uh, the million-dollar question, uh, or multi-million-dollar question in this case, relative to the tax play. Bill, of the PLRs and of all of these ING trusts that you've done for, for clients all over the country, um, how many of them have been challenged by the IRS or how many, how many of them have been have been overturned, so to speak, if that's the right way to say it? Well, I'm going to report total failure in this regard. Um, we've never had a PLR application uh, for an for a non-grantor trust uh, rejected by the IRS, so I haven't had any IRS challenges. Of course, once you have the PLR, there's nothing for an auditor to say. The auditor for the IRS is bound, and it's also our view that for those who are concerned about state auditors on state income taxes, with a PLR. We believe the supremacy clause of the Constitution precludes any state auditor from taking a position. It's mm-hmm. really a grantor trust. Uh, absent the PLR, then state auditors, especially in New York and California, could say whatever they want to say. Mm-hmm. Turning to state audits, that too is a total failure. Um, we have never lost a single penny to any state on any transaction that we've done. We have not had any audited. Now, I know there's been a lot written about the hostility of the board in in California uh, to the transaction. And there are commentators in California who say this simply doesn't work. Nonetheless, for seven years, we've been doing it in California. A lot of the trusts will have both source and non-source income, so they're reporting to California the existence of the trust Mm -hmm. and paying taxes only on the California source income. And to date, there hasn't been one audit issue raised by uh, the California board. Uh, So 
the answer to your question is how have we done? We've struck out. We can't. We we haven't done anything yet to provoke an auditor from to, into taking a position. Which I think is an amazing commentary, if I could for a second, because you know, Bill, when you taught me this concept years ago, um, and then I talk about it around the country, and of course bring you in to to talk more about it, I, I do get pushed back on it, and I think it's extraordinarily remarkable that that what you just said, and and to me, uh, makes this even more of a of a compelling move. This concludes part one of my very fascinating interview with Bill Lipkin around some extremely timely and relevant uh, tax issues facing uh, large families in the United States and around the world. Uh, look for part two of my interview with Bill Lipkin to soon be released, which will continue along the same topics and will promise to be as intriguing and as timely and thought-provoking as the first part. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. For more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.